We are studying the book of James. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've talked about James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, not to be confused with James, who was the disciple, one of the 12 disciples. That James didn't live a lot longer than Jesus did before he was executed. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, did not believe in Jesus, did not, did not believe in him throughout his earthly ministry. And then Jesus died on the cross and rose again on the third day, just like he said he was going to do, and James was a believer. <laughs> like, like thousands of others became believers, James was all in. And not just a believer, but he became a leader in the local church of Jerusalem. And that's all I can say other than if you missed our introduction week, we looked back in the scriptures. There are scriptures, you might not know this, there are scriptures in the life of Jesus that talk about his, his little brother and his family, about James. And there's also stories about James as a church leader in the book of Acts. So we discussed all that, and if you missed that, you could find it on um, uh, May the 16th. May the 16th, um, the Facebook Live serv sermons on there, you can find it there. Or you can go to our um, uh, website and find the audio as well and get the backstory on James if you want to know more about him. And I really recommend it. I mean, you know... It's not because I, I spoke it. That's, that's the downside, right? But I mean, seriously, if you miss May 16th, that's a great backstory into who James is, and you might want to check it out. We've been working through his letter called the book of James, and last week we stopped with James chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. And we're going to start with James 2 verse 8 today and overlap a little bit like we sometimes do. Because next time, the next sermon from James is going to kind of change gears a little bit. So we, not totally. But uh, today's going to be a little bit of, in fact, today's a little bit on things we've said the last two weeks. In fact, I kind of stole my thunder for today in what I said the last two weeks a little bit. Now, we didn't because the end of this message is very pointed. But the beginning of this will feel a little redundant to what we said the last two weeks. And I'm going to even make it more so by reviewing something else we've said. But I don't mind that. I don't mind some redundancy because something that's important, it takes a while for it to set in. It takes a while. As human beings, it takes a while for something to get into us. Sometimes when we hear something that's contrary to us or new, sometimes we can be skeptical or, or hesitant. And then as we absorb it and think about it more, it can become part of who we are. And so this is a big idea. In fact, I was taking a walk last night, like I often do late at night, uh, down to the church here to just pray and think about today. And as I was, I was walking and thinking, you know, I've grown up in church. And I know some of you online, some of you in person, you've had long church experiences too. And I, I really have been, I lament that there are so many people that I know and I've, I've experienced things that their church experience has been kind of a redundant message of look how much better we are than the rest of the world. Now, the church wouldn't say it that way because that sounds bad. But the church's message so many times is kind of a message of saying, here's what's wrong with culture, here's what's wrong with everybody else. And as they just, you know, level the earth about everybody else and what's wrong with everything and everyone's angry in their tone, it's almost like some people, their religious expression is, I live a completely ungodly or, or secular life, but when I step into the God space, it's to say, here's what's wrong with everybody else. You know, that's, that's their God expression. And so as people step into that, sometimes in church, people growing up in church culture where we just hear a lot of, here's what's wrong with everybody else. And in doing so, the undertoned message, though it's not said this way because it would sound bad, is kind of like, we're better. I mean, we're not perfect, but we're, we're better than that. 
And I may say this later, so forgive, the, forgive that if it means I do, but I feel like a lot of people, they, they grew up in a church culture where they say, I like hard preaching. I like preaching that calls sin, sin. But what I've learned is, is that we like hard preaching about other people's sins. We like hard preaching about other things in culture. Don't mess with my stuff, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, that, I'm going to spiritualize my stuff. And so you preach against sin, here's a list of ones I'd like for my church to preach against, right? Or um, preach against, you know, preach hard. And, and, and here's what I've learned. You know, if I'm a spiritual person and I pray a lot, I'm like, preach on prayer. And tell people they ought to pray. And I pray, but I could pray more. So when you tell everybody they ought to pray more, I feel convicted. Because I could even do better. I'm already better than everybody else. But I could even do better than everybody. You know, so, so preach and challenge me where I'm already ahead of the pack. But, but we don't like to be hit where we are. That's painful. It's painful to get hit right in the eyeballs, right? So, so I, I found that in church culture sometimes, and I'm not trying to bash church culture. I think I said this last week. Humans are humans, okay? You don't have to be a Christian to be a human. That's, sometimes people would argue that we are anymore. But uh, here's what I'm saying. This is the big idea. And this is what I, I think grieves me is... Um, Humans are humans, but sometimes, sometimes Jesus followers forget that we have different marching orders, right? We have different marching orders. We have a different example. So when we just behave like humans in a dog, eat dog, survival of the fittest, look out for old number one, get ahead, criticize my enemies, be in silos, you know, you know, find my confirmation biases, be, you know, us versus them, all the kind of things the world does. When we do that stuff, we, we have a better example. So we got to figure out a better way. So because some of us are so used to church expressions like that, I find it helpful to try and beat the other drum extra hard because i got to shake some of that off. And, and, and for some of us, we miss we're like, man, I haven't heard a sermon in a long time that tells me what's wrong with all those people. And I'm like, well, I don't think we're going to help anybody by sitting in here feeling good about ourselves. But we can help ourselves a lot by saying, where can we be more like Jesus? Where can we be better with the love we've been shown? So I want to step on our toes. So with that in mind, let me kind of rewind and be a little redundant about something we've said. And that is this, that when Jesus was on this earth, the religious leaders and the teachers of law asked Jesus, they said, hey, you seem to be a smart guy about the scriptures. Tell us which is the most important command in all of the scriptures, in all the law. And they're referring to their, what we call the, we call it the Old Testament. Um, Jude, uh, Judaistic people, they would call it the Hebrew scriptures, their scriptures. It's not old to them, it's, the scriptures, it's their scriptures. And that's all they had at that time. So the ancient Hebrew scriptures, which contained the story of Israel, from slavery and bondage and before all the way through settling in the new land. They had prophets, they had laws, they had history as a nation. The Hebrew scriptures had a lot of rules to live by as the nation. A lot of laws, written laws, oral laws. And in this section of scriptures, 
someone says, Jesus, tell me what's the most important of the commandments in there? What's the greatest one? And Jesus gives them one, but he gives them them in two parts, but they're, they're not two commands. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm repeating this because this is such a big idea. These two commands are really one idea, but they are kind of seen in two different lenses. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. And these, and of course, Jesus explained that idea of love your neighbor as yourself. That neighbor is not just the person next door to you. It's, it's anyone who needs help. It's, it's your enemy. And the story he tells about the Good Samaritan is actually an enemy. Someone on the other side of the aisle of you. But he says, love, love others. Love God, love others. And Jesus wasn't saying these are two commands. He was saying they go together. They are the same. Because, again, we're good at divorcing. We think that if I love God, I don't have to necessarily love or treat people very well because I love God. In fact, a lot of people who claim to love God don't treat people that they don't think are right very well because I don't have to because I'm right and they're wrong. I'm good and they're bad. I'm, and I love God. And who can question us when we say we love God? I mean, how dare you question that? I love God. You don't know my heart. I love God. But, but Jesus is saying you can't, you can't divorce loving God and loving others. That's the, loving others is the expression of loving God. How can you say you love God when you've never seen, when you don't love your brother or your neighbor who you do see? So he says these two go together. So I remind you of that to remind you of something else in review. And that is right before Jesus went to the cross, he was in the upper room having a last meal with his disciples, a last a meal, a, a Passover celebration. And before he's arrested that very night, he says to his followers, guys, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And again, that's, that's crazy talk because they already had commandments. You don't give a new commandment. They had the scriptures of theirs already. But Jesus was saying, I can do that because I'm God. I'm going to prove who I am by dying on the cross and rising again like I've been saying all along. I'm the coming Messiah. But he said, before I do, I'm giving you a new commandment. In other words, I'm going to give you some new marching orders. And in John 13, 34, we, he says, So I'm giving you now a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And again, he, was, he wasn't skipping, like, where's the part about loving God? And Jesus is like, look, I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new today. Okay? This is a new covenant. It's a new testament. This is, a, this, is, this is how it goes from here. And he didn't even mention the love God part. Not because it's not important, but because he understood that sometimes we get that vertical, horizontal theology confused. And we start thinking, if I'm loving God, that's enough. And he says, no, the way you love God is by how you treat others. So love each other as I've loved you. And so as we see, um, this is the New Testament commentary. In fact, um, this is the entire New Testament message. And I just want to drive this home again because it's so important. And we're going to just look at a few verses today. So this is an important basis. When you read the New Testament, and I challenge you to read it for yourself, you'll see a different tone in our, in our, in our Christian scriptures. You'll see a new tone. What you'll see is... There's not really much, there's really two big commands. I mean, there's a great commission, go spread the good news. But there's really two big ideas hit over and over again throughout the New Testament. And it's not love God, love others. That was what Jesus, that, Jesus said that's what summarized the Old Testament or the ancient Hebrew scriptures. As he gave new marching orders, he said, here's what it looks like. And in the New Testament, if you read it, you'll see two big ideas. And one of them is not love God. Love God is in the New Testament. 
But it's not so much a command that says you need to love God. It's more of an observation like, hey, God blesses those who love him. All things work together for good to those who love God. So the observation is that have faith that God will take care of those who love him. But it's not really a lot of punch of commands to love God in the New Testament. There's just not. Just read it for yourself. You won't find hardly any of, of that command preached. You'll, you'll see it taught what that looks like practically, but you won't be told to do that a lot. You'll be told that God blesses those who love him, but you won't be commanded to love him a lot in the New Testament. The New Testament covers two big ideas over and over again. One of them is this. Number one, have faith that God loves you. Okay, let me say it this way. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news that God loves you. Believe that, because that's hard to get through our thick skulls because we have this idea of God being something else. Believe that you are loved. Believe that God loves you. Believe, believe, believe that. And then number two, go love other people the same way. Believe that God loves you and go love each other. Now read your New Testament this summer and look, look at that theme. You'll see it. Believe that God loves you and go love others. So what about loving God? Well, it's, it's in there. It's scattered throughout. But you know, we love him. Why? We love him because he first loved us. And so when we, when we have faith that we are loved, we are free to then, once we absorb that, to say, let me go and do the same. And those things go together. I won't love very well if I don't believe I'm loved. And if I don't love very well, I'm probably going to start doubting that I'm loved. God says, go love each other as I've loved you. And the whole New Testament commentary leverages loving one another. And so I think I said this last week, but I, again, I'm laying a long foundation for a short message today because we're wrapping up this arc. So Jesus did not, um, in the New Testament, you don't see a lot of the New Testament. You don't see Paul and James and Peter leveraging the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament as a basis for why we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. They reference the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, sometimes as an example to us or to make, uh, to make a point. But, but they don't say, uh, you should not kill because there's an old law that says thou shalt not murder. Like, oh, man, I was going to do it until that old law. No, he says, no, uh, we'll, we'll refer to those things sometimes. We'll refer to the examples from back then. But, but we have a new order. Love one another as God loved us. So if you love each other, you're not going to kill each other. If you love each other, you're not going to cheat on each other. If you love each other, you're going to do the right things towards each other. So in the New Testament, you'll see the, the acting out of the love one another command. You'll see serve one another, sacrifice for one another, honor one another, prefer one another, give to one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another, <gasps> be gracious and merciful to one another. It's all flowing off of Jesus' new marching order. And then, of course, with a lot of commentary, a lot of old examples, and, 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 and put in place. But it's this, believe that God loves you, and then go love each other. That's how you love him. Or can I say it this way? This will set us up for a future week. Have faith and works. Have faith that God loves you, have faith in God's love, and then the works should come of you then loving others the way that you understand and believe that God loves you. That's how it should manifest itself. There's your New Testament kind of summarized a little bit. And again, if that's not the box you've seen it in or if you're waiting for me to you know, preach a biblical sermon about what's wrong with everybody else, just read the New Testament and look at that lens. I think it'll change your life. So, with that in mind, we're going to study James 2, verses 8 through 13 today. won't be long, but I want us to see what James has to say. We left off with verse 8 last week. James 2, 8 says this. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Now, I'm going to pause here. When James says the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. 
And the reason I say that to you is because there were no New Testament. The Christian scriptures were not finished yet. They were being penned. In fact, James is writing part of them right here. The life of Jesus was still being recorded, and it wasn't printed, and it wasn't a printing press anyhow, and it wasn't compiled. But remember, if you read the beginning of the letter to James, you may have seen something that's very important. James was writing this specific letter to a Jewish audience. James is writing this letter, if you read the beginning of this letter, to the Jews that were scattered since the years of their captivity. They were scattered to all these other cities. And when, when Jesus came and died and rose again, missionaries like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and, and others, and they all spread the gospel to all these cities. And some of these Jewish people became believers in Jesus, but they were people who were used to their culture. And so they knew the scriptures, in their sense, would have been there what they had before. And James is, they weren't there when Jesus was in the upper room, when James was writing this letter. They weren't there in the upper room when Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. He's talking to this Hebrew audience. And so he says, listen, you've seen something from a long time ago. I'm going to reference something that you know from your scriptures to teach what Jesus taught us to do in that upper room. And he says to them, the royal law, you understand what royal means? It means it's the king of all the laws. The royal law is this. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And someone could have raised their hand and said, time out, James, you missed one. Isn't it love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor? He says, no, because again, as Jesus showed us, that's how you do it. Love, this is the royal law. This, is, this kind of gets the whole job done. This is what Jesus said in the new commandment. Love each other as I've loved you. So the royal law in the scriptures, even in the Hebrew scriptures, if you understand the context of what loving God looks like in practice, the royal law is loving your neighbor as yourself, James said. Very important to understand that. Then he says in verse 9, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. And I think if we're being honest, I, we, we discussed this last week. We, we talked about this favoritism, prejudice, preferential treatment issue last week in the preceding verses. And it kind of, he, he brings it up in verse 9 again. If we're honest, if we're honest together here, this can seem kind of petty to us. This is the part of the church experience I'm talking about. Like, come on, Arlen. Come on, James. Can't we talk about those other people out there, the bad people of the world? Can we, like, talk about those bad people that do bad things? You know, you know, you know what bad sins are, right? Bad sins are other people's sins. Those are the bad ones. So can we talk about the bad sins that other people do? And can we talk about the bad people? And, you know, um, and James is like, you know, why are you picking on favoritism? Who cares about favoritism? Like, really? Are we going to be that petty? Who cares if I have favorites? I'm committing a sin? Like, I don't, don't mind you calling sin a sin. I just wish you'd call someone else's sin a sin. But leave my favoritism alone. That seems kind of petty. But again, what good are we doing to, to huddle in the building and talk about what's wrong with everybody else? Instead of saying, here's where we're struggling. He says favoritism is a sin. And it's guilty of breaking the law. Now listen, this is important. We break the law. The same law that we condemn others for breaking by something as simple as prejudice, discrimination, as we saw. In fact, James expounds on the importance of not breaking even the small ideas of the law in the next couple of verses. Verse 10, he says this, For the person, the person who keeps all the law of the laws, the person who keeps all of the laws except one. Well, first of all, the person who keeps all the laws except one is pretty remarkable. 
I, I've tried to live a pretty straight life. I've not done that well. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. And again, that just seems harsh. Let's be honest now. That just seems like James, really? Like a guy who breaks one law is as, bad, is as guilty as the person who's broken all of God's laws? Like, does it, it just, can't we like say, I'm not perfect? Hey, nobody's perfect, or nobody's perfect, but I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as those people I saw in the, in, on, the, on the news last night or those bad people in history. Like, I'm as guilty if I, if I do better than those people. I'm as guilty as they are where they've broken so many of God's laws. And James is saying, yes, that's why it's a big deal that you love each other and don't show favoritism and do all the things he's talking about. And so he's going to drive the point home with a, almost a simple and almost silly illustration. But James likes the simple, silly illustrations, doesn't he? Remember, the, remember a couple of weeks ago he did the mirror, looking in the mirror illustration? It's almost silly to make a point about how we ignore God's law when we see it. So he's going to use another one that's so simple, and he does it in verse 11. He says, For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. To which we'd say, well, obviously, those are two big ideas. And it's a ridiculous notion for someone to say, I murdered people, but hey, you committed adultery. At least I didn't commit adultery. I'm not a lawbreaker because I didn't commit adultery. I just killed. Or someone over here to say, well, I committed adultery, but I didn't kill. You broke the law. I didn't because I just committed adultery. And James is like, so he's hitting easy, he's low-hanging fruit. Like, we're like, well, duh, you both did. And James is like, yes. But don't forget the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love as, love as God has loved us. Don't forget that part. Oh. And when you show favoritism, you've broken the law, you've sinned. And we, we, we want to make a third category. He's kind of saying, look, you want to make a third category and say, well, I didn't murder or commit adultery. I'm not a lawbreaker. He said, but it's all breaking the law. And we're all guilty. And by the way, that's what the gospel's about. The gospel's about bringing all of us to the point where we know that we're not perfect enough to, to earn God's favor or earn salvation on our own merit. <laughs> we're all condemned. We're all sinners. And, and, and I think that sometimes we as Christians can pay lip service like, oh, I know, I'm also a sinner too, better than some. I'm also a sinner too, not as bad as others. I'm also a sinner too. But God's like, no, no, the ground's level. We all need saving. We all need a Savior. And so here, let me make it clear that you break one law. You can't say, well, I didn't break that one, so I'm not a lawbreaker. You still are. How many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? It's almost like the silly, if we're going to use James's analogy, let's keep going. How many murders do you have to commit to be a murderer? You ever picture this person in court? The judge is like, sir, you're a murderer. Time out, judge. I'm sorry to interrupt. Please don't hold me in contempt. Judge, I want to stop you right there. I, I am really offended that you would call me a murderer. Sure, I killed someone. But judge, listen to me. I didn't kill all the people. Like there are lots of people running around that I have not killed yet. You're one of them, sir. I mean, and, and I've not killed lots of people. I didn't, kill, I didn't even kill most of the people, okay? I just killed this one person. And, I, and judge, listen, judge, they needed killing, okay? I mean, <laughs> they had it coming. So in my defense, I'm not a murderer. I just committed a murder. And we say, well, that's silly. You commit a murder, you're a murderer. Try that with your marriage, with your wife. Honey, I'm not an adulterer. Yeah, I, I cheated on you. I slept with another woman. I'm not an adulterer. Honey, listen, time out. Before you get mad at me, before you throw that pan, listen. I didn't sleep with all the women. 
Okay, in fact, there's, honey, listen, there's a whole lot of women I don't want to sleep with, okay, like ever, okay. I didn't even sleep with many of the women. I just slept with one, just this one other woman. But I'm not an adulterer. And we say, well, that's dumb. How many laws does a person have to break to be a lawbreaker? Well, I don't break some of the laws. I'm just unloving. I'm just maybe hypocritical, judgmental, arrogant, better than I'm in my silo, I'm critical across the aisle, I have different standards for different people, I prefer some over others, I'm self-righteous. But I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a murderer. Jesus, James says if you break the royal law, you're a lawbreaker. And it's not just so we can come to the point where we need a savior. That's part of this to bring us all to the point where we need to come to Jesus for salvation. But it's also to challenge us to stop pointing elsewhere for the problems of culture and point inward and say, what's my part? Because I represent a Savior who did better than that for me, and I represent him in this world. We tend to categorize, but James says this seemingly lesser harmful matter of preferential treatment or disdain towards others is as much a breaking of the law as we judge others for doing the things that we think are worse. And James is going to make a powerful statement, and I want to pause here. I did not do this last hour. The 9 o'clock people, I didn't, I didn't caution them of this. I should have, but now they were the guinea pigs. So I'm going to tell you this in the next few minutes. The last couple of verses we're going to see today is some of the harshest, not harsh, that's hard. It's some of the most, it's, it's hard, it just is. It's some of the hardest parts of the gospel. When you read the New Testament message, it's a lot of good grace and love. But some of the most pointed thoughts that we don't spend time thinking about are going to come out from James next. And not just James, we're going to see it's elsewhere too. But James mentions something that's hard to swallow in a New Testament gospel theology. And we're just going to get into it. And it's good for us to do that. And it's actually a grace that we need to have. But it goes back to the point where we like to preach about sins that other people struggle with more and not the ones that we struggle with. And, and James is like, let's get really close to home here and, and let you know how it really is with God and let's be uncomfortable. So in verse 12, he says this. So whatever you say, or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. Now that's a great statement. That statement, the law that sets you free, we saw that a few weeks ago when James gave us that looking in the mirror illustration. The law that sets you free. And that means a lot of things. In one sense, it means that when we... Uh, breaking the law doesn't give us freedom. Being free from law doesn't, lawlessness doesn't, doesn't give us freedom. We can lose our freedom to, to, the, to the prison or to a lost relationship or a, a lost a family can take freedom away, our employment. So many things can be lost in freedom when we are lawless. But laws, good laws, give us the room for freedom. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that God's law has, you know, God's law is a, a law ultimately of judgment, but also of mercy. It's a law of grace. It's a law of forgiveness. It's a law that our sins must be paid for and God paid for them because he wants us back more than he wants us to pay. And he says, you're going to be judged. I'm going to give you a judgment and this is going to set you free. And that sounds interesting so far, but we don't understand what it's saying until we look at the next verse and consider the rest of Scripture. Whatever you say, whatever you do, remember, you will be judged a certain, by a certain measurement by the law that sets you free. Here goes, ready? Verse 13. There will be no mercy 
there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Don't rush past this verse. This is one to write down, put it on a 3x5 card, tape it to something you'll see. On old I said 3x5 cards, who uses those anymore? Use your screensaver on your, computer, your, desk, your, your Mac or uh, your, uh, your iPhone or whatever you have. Put this somewhere. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. James, that doesn't seem like good news there. Like there's a room where God will not be merciful to me when he judges me? But you know, mercy for me? And James is like, yeah, listen. When, when you don't show mercy to somebody else, in other words, they need mercy. You understand what, we understand what mercy is, right? Mercy means someone deserves what they, they deserve what they're going to get, but you don't give it to them. When someone needs mercy because they've offended my sensibilities or they've offended me or they've hurt me or they've hurt people I love. They've just, they've, they're bad, they're wrong. They, they're, they're just, they're wrong. And it doesn't mean that there's not consequences for wrong. There's a, that's a whole different conversation. The point is when we are unforgiving, when we are unmerciful and when we, don't, when we lack grace, when we're driven by anger, self-righteousness, condemnation, judgment, and revenge. God says you don't show mercy to others, there's no mercy for you. But when you show people in your personal life who need mercy, you show them mercy. God will be merciful when he judges you. In other words, and I'm going to show you some other things, so hang tight. This is important. James is saying something that we see elsewhere in Scripture, that we get to set the rules of the game. Isn't that cool? We get, you ever play some games with people who have special rules? Like when I play Monopoly with somebody, which I try not to do anymore when I used to, I'd be like, um, so how, how do you play? What are your rules? We used to play Rook. Anyway, does anybody play Rook besides me ever? Is that my the only Rook? You Rook? Okay. Anybody else know what Rook even is? It's like, I grew up in a Baptist circle where playing cards were bad, so Rook was playing cards for Baptists, okay? So anyhow, um, so Rook, um, and I, we, everyone had different rules for the Rook set. And you know, some people, I think they used to, I had, I had a, one family of friends I knew who, they always changed the rules by whatever hand they were dealt. Uh, this time, we're playing Rook high, not Rook low. Ah, Okay. You know, but anyhow, um, God, we get to set the rules when it comes to our judgment. When it comes to the tone of our Heavenly Father in His correction of us one day. We get to set the rules of the game. That's cool, but the problem is that God says He's going to play by those rules too. We just get to set them. Now before I drive that home, let me tell you that James is not having a bad moment here. You're like, James, that seems a little bit like, oh, I don't like it. I know what you meant, but you could have worded it better. James, um, probably shouldn't have had that uh, ice-cold root beer while you were writing that part of the letter. You kind of got distracted. Um, just in case we're confused about what James is trying to say, I want to just remind you this idea is throughout all of Scripture. We will only turn to one other, but let me reference several. Way back in the ancient Hebrew Scriptures, in the book of Proverbs, the proverb is said, and it's said in Psalms too, it's said a couple times in the ancient scriptures, that God will be merciful and show mercy to the merciful, but to the forward and to the, to the hard and the perverse, he will be forward to back to them. And he says, you show me what it's going to be. Almost the exact same wording. 
fast forward to Jesus' ministry. Jesus said this a whole bunch. In the model prayer that Jesus taught, he even included in our model prayer to pray this, Lord, forgive my sins or my debts as I forgive those who sinned against me. And then at the end of that model prayer, Jesus makes one of the most pointed statements. If you think James is pointed here, wait till you see what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14. Jesus said, if you, already, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But, verse 15, but if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is a common statement from Proverbs to Matthew. In fact, I mean, without turning there, we told a story a couple months ago in church. You may have been here from Matthew 18, and I won't have us turn there for sake of time. But in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story to make this point. And the story he tells is about a king or a ruler who is trying to gather those who owed him money. He calls in a servant who owed him like a million bucks and says to the guy, pay up your debt. And the guy says, I can't, I have no money. And he says, fine, throw him into debtor's prison because people will be sold into debtor's prison or servitude to pay off their debts. Even their family will be, will be sold into servitude to pay off their debts. He says, put this man into, into debtor's prison so he works off his debt to me. And the man falls on his knees and begs and says, please, I can't pay off my debt. I can't do it. And he's pleading for his freedom. He's pleading for mercy. And the king in the story that Jesus was telling, the king says, he has compassion on this man, and he actually says, I forgive your huge debt. You're set free. And the man leaves, having been extended tremendous mercy. As he goes his merry way, he encounters a man who owes him like a hundred bucks. And he grabs the guy by the collar and says, pay me what you owe me. And the guy says, please, I don't have it. I can't pay it. I'm poor. And the guy says, oh, you're going to pay all right, you jerk. And he says, I'm going to have you thrown into the prison to serve and your family with you until you earn me back my $100. And he doesn't show the guy any mercy. He will not forgive his smaller debt. And people who were there witnessed the man do that. And they were so shocked, they went back and told the ruler. And the ruler calls the man back in and he says, you wicked, wicked person. Don't miss this. The ruler did not call him wicked because he owed him a million dollars. Did you hear me? The ruler didn't call him wicked because he owed him a big debt. He called him wicked because though he was forgiven a big debt, he didn't forgive somebody else for their debt. That's why he called him a wicked servant. He said to him, you wicked man, I forgave you so much, you couldn't forgive that guy? And he said to his guys, throw him into the prison until he pays back everything he owed me. And that's a really hard story because we're like, well, wait a minute, didn't he already forgive him for that? Is he taking that back? And it's really a hard story. In fact, the chapter ends hard, where Jesus actually says at the very end, so shall Heavenly Father do unto you who don't forgive your brothers. It's like, whoa. And just a tension. And we like that we want to resolve that tension. But I don't think Jesus is trying to resolve our tension. Jesus is trying to tell us, hey, guys, I forgive you for a whole lot. I'm not calling you wicked because you've got a mess on your hands. I'm not calling you wicked because you're a hot mess. But you are wicked when you're forgiven for your hot mess and you're not forgiving others for theirs. And so in the story, the man's thrown into prison. He's not thrown into, he's thrown into prison not because of his debt. Yes, that's what got him there. But because he was not willing to forgive others. And the ruler in that story says, well, if you are going to play by the rules of no mercy, if you're going to play by the rules of unforgiveness, if that's how you're going to operate, then fine, pay for yours too. And that's what he's saying in Matthew 6 right here. If you forgive others, I'll forgive you. If you don't forgive others, so James was saying, that's what Proverbs was saying. 
God is merciful to the merciful, but if we will not show mercy to others, we should not expect mercy. And it seems so harsh, and I told you this is one of the harshest ideas in the gospel. But boy, I tell you what, this is where we need to be preached at, isn't it? This is where we need to be challenged, because what's wrong with our theology if we want a theology that benefits us but nobody else? If we want a theology that benefits us but not our enemies? I'm going to be... I'm going to say it. All my life, I have watched, I've watched up close in my, in my lifetime religious people who go to church and sing about the love of God. I can sing of your love forever. And they sing about the grace. And they sing about the mercy. And they sing about forgiveness. And they preach about it behind pulpits and on platforms and stages. They preach about it. And if they're Christians, they discuss it in their Sunday school classes or their small groups. Or they post about it on their social media. And they have their favorite Bible verses about grace and mercy and love. And yet when someone crosses them, when someone offends their sensibilities, when someone hurts them, all of a sudden they have none of it. They're the most ungracious, unforgiving, unkind people in the world. And it's like... I've sat back sometimes and I thought, I thought, I looked at people before in my life and I thought, I've heard you talk grace so much, your talk of grace inspired me. Where's your grace now? And I realized that for a lot of us, we have a compartmentalization of our faith. Where we I want to step into the God space and like soak up all the grace and sing of his love forever and believe all that stuff for us. But when it comes to anyone else in our lives, we don't believe that that translates in how we should act. How we should treat people we disagree with or don't like or feel bad about. We want, we want something from God for us and we want to sing about it and feel it and cry about it, but we don't want it for others. Well, God can give it to them if he wants to. No, God calls us to be that. He tells us to do that. To have faith in his love and the works of our faith should be we love others as he's loved us. We believe he loves us and we love others. That's the royal law. And when the Christian group acts like the world. I think we're very worldly because the world is dog eats dog, survival of the fittest, get ahead at all costs, do what's best for me. When we get into a mindset that says, look out for me and my tribe and my thing and my, my team and my issues and you offended me and I'm going to get you back or I'm going to make you pay or I'm going to cut you off or I'm going to be harsh or critical, attack, or I'm, gonna look, I'm better than you, I'm arrogant towards people who sin different than I sin, and I'm, and I'm all these things. That's the world acts that way. When we use God, we God as our covering to act that way. That's not what God did for us. What God did for us? Jesus set aside his divinity, stepped into our world, humbled himself like a servant, washed our feet, literally served us to death to bring us back at his expense because he wanted us back more than he wanted us to pay. And when we bask in that on one end, on the other end, we believe a theology that says, us versus them, or me and you, and you hurt me, and I'll never get, I'm going to get you back, all that kind of stuff. We just missed it. We missed it. And our songs are empty. We're raising hollow, empty hands to a God in worship. And our sermons are empty. And our posts on Facebook are a turnoff to those who see the hypocrisy. We can't compartmentalize this. We must believe that that is true from God for us and, and, and we have faith in that and so we give it. It's our works. We do it. We love as God has loved us. We follow the royal law. And yes, that's pointed. 
And what Jesus says right here is pointed. What James says is pointed. It's almost like you want to sit back and say, Arlen, I need to meet with you privately because I have some real theological scares about that because I thought God forgave. What does that mean? If he doesn't forgive us, what does that mean for me? We're all concerned. About, we get concerned about these things in Scripture when we're afraid they're going to not, when gonna, we're afraid that means something's going to stop benefiting us because we want a gospel that's all about the benefits for me, the goodness for me. And, and we don't really want to do that in our practical lives towards each other. And when James or Jesus pulls us into a space where he says those two go together, we get insecure in our gospel. And we shouldn't be. Gospel's great. But there's something our Heavenly Father is saying about saying, let's talk, son. Let's talk, daughter. You moms and dads get this. You get your kids and you, they're not perfect, but you love them no matter what. But when they start treating each other like garbage, you're like, hey, now. Heavenly Father says, hey, I'm going to deal with you. If that's how you're going to be. And we can't pretend it's all good here and not care about how we act out here towards each other. In other words, if this sounds harsh at an initial glance, if the scriptures seem harsh here, it's not. God is giving us, come on, come on. God is giving us the grace to sit in his chair and decide the rules. God's like, you want to sit in my chair? None of us do. We wouldn't say out loud we want to. We kind of do, but we don't want to say that out loud. You know, God says, sit in my chair. You, you be me. You decide the people, the peasants in your life, how you're going to handle how they've offended you, how they've mistreated you, how they've angered you, how you just look at how they live. Because you sit in my chair and tell me how it's going to be. Go ahead, God says. I'm going to, I'm going to step out of the way. Tell me how it's going to be. Tell me how you rule, how, how you deal with people in your affairs. Tell me how you deal with people when they affect your kingdom in a way that you don't appreciate. Show me how it's done, God says. And that's my grace to you. And I'm going to let you tell me how you want me to, to govern when I'm back in the chair. That's how we'll do it. So he's ready to oblige the standard he lets us set. That's grace. So is that we're not missing the point. Let's read the verses of James. We're gonna, I have no sticky statements today. I got no cute little line to take home with you. Just want to read those verses again and let them kind of stick with us. So James 6, verse, I'm sorry, James 2, verses 8 through 13. Let's read them once more as we wrap up. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So, so, whatever you say or whatever you do, Remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. A theme in scripture that maybe ought to be the beginning of a posture of humility, gratitude, and repentance amongst those who benefit from the grace of God. You and me. Believe that you're loved and then go love others. 
New Testament. Believe God loves you, now go love each other. Faith and works. Have faith in God's love for you. Have faith in the gospel. Have faith in the good news. And then go love and show what that looks like in your universe. Don't sing it. Don't quote it. Don't write it down on a piece of paper. Live it for the sake of every person. You are loved. They are loved. We should show it. And God says, I'm your father. Come on now. Come on, child. Tell me how it's going to go. Tell me how we're going to play this game. What game are you playing today? Candyland? What are the rules? Okay, those are your rules. You've got to play by those rules too now. It's not just for your sibling. It's for you too. What are the rules? What are the rules for how you treat others? What are the rules? And Jesus said, God says, as your father, I'll let you set them, but you've got to answer for them yourself. That's fair. It's challenging, but it's righteous.